Hi guys, come on in, sit down and relax, put in your fancy iPhone earbuds. You're about to listen to Let's Talk Iran and Stuff, a podcast about all things Iran related and pretty much anything else I find to be particularly interesting. I'm your host, my name is Raza Murashi, I'm an Iranian-American, I'm a lovable jerk, I'm a sweatpants aficionado, and most importantly, I'm the research director at the National Iranian-American Council. I'm sitting here live in my office in Washington, D.C., and before we go any further, make sure to check out NIAC and support NIAC at www.niacouncil.org. You can also check us out on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or any other social media platform of your choosing. This is episode three of the podcast since our reboot in May, and I want to give a special shout out to my colleague Nina Jafari. This podcast literally could not happen without her because I am technologically challenged, and she is a technology wizard with magic powers. So major props to Mina for being the real brains behind this operation. Now, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, here's a quick refresher course about our mission. In my eternal quest to give knowledge to the people, I'm going to hit up as many friends and colleagues as possible to share their expertise with you about all things Iran-related and pretty much anything else I find to be interesting. Like a fine wine, this podcast will only get better with age, so if you keep listening, I'll keep providing you with top-notch content that's free from the typical Washington, D.C. spin, and that's a Reza Marashi promise. This week, my guest is Maryam Jamshidi, or as I affectionately call her, Jams. She's a lawyer and writer with over 10 years of experience working on issues relating to the Middle East and North Africa. She's provided legal representation to a number of regional governments. She's worked at a local human rights organization in a Middle Eastern country, and she served on a fact-finding mission to Egypt on behalf of the National Lawyers Guild. Jams has written various academic articles on transnational justice and the Arab world. She's written articles in outlets such as Al Jazeera, and she's written a book, which of course we discuss on this very podcast. Jams and I talked about national security, terrorism, the Arab Spring, her ongoing field research on gangster rap, and a whole lot more. I think you're going to like it a lot. I think you're going to learn a lot. And much respect to Jams for agreeing to chop it up with me. So, without further ado, enjoy the show. Jams. Reza. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. I mean, you were on the short list. So as I've told, so mm. if, if, if our <laughs> listeners uh, are, have listened to the other podcast that I've done since I've restarted it. Yeah. Right? I had Eric Ferrari. Right. I had Shervin Malekzadeh. Right. And then I've invited a couple of other people and I'm working on scheduling. You were on the short list. Oh, was I really on the short list? Do you really just tell everyone list. that they're on the short list? Not if they're not on the short list. <laughs> <laughs> I think on. once they say yes, you say, oh, well, you were on the short list. Absolutely not. <laughs> okay. Absolutely not. All right. I haven't gone through everybody on the short list. Yet okay. Because okay. while we do this podcast to try and give knowledge to the people, mm-hmm. right? The people need uh, it. The people, Lord knows the people need it. Mm-hmm. Um, some people are not capable of giving knowledge to the people. Well, and then they're not going to be on the podcast. They're not on the short list. They're not on the short list. Or on the podcast. No. No. Never mind. No. Never mind the podcast. They're on Twitter. They are. And Twitter gives everybody a voice, and that's why. <laughs> exactly. Sucks. Yeah. That character limit is good for people who have no knowledge to share. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. Sometimes when I, uh, when I want to uh, feel better about myself, I just don't log on to Twitter. Because when I look at my mentions, it's just a cesspool of <laughs> people who tell me how terrible I am. Are you kidding me? I'm at that point on Twitter where, like, any mention is a good mention. So I dive right into that cesspool. I'm, like, ready to get dirty with everyone else who's trashing on me. And, and now 
people understand why I've invited you. Yes. 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 My standards are low. (laughs) (laughs) Swimming with Jay. Yeah. (laughs) Swimming in the cesspool. Let me ask you something. Okay. To kick things off here, please. Uh, You chose one of my favorite songs of all time. Oh, okay. Okay. Did not know that. Okay. You chose Dr. Dre, nothing but a G. Yes. So explain to me and explain to the people why you chose this seminal song in hip hop history. So that's sort of where I am in my uh, self-directed hip hop educational journey. <laughs> so that's a great thing to Thank you. So I am at the very early days personally yeah. of the growth of well, hip hop in general, but definitely the nuances of hip hop. So I suffer from a condition called specific musical I think it's called ahedonia. It sounds kind of Iranian, doesn't it? It sounds like something. Ahedonia. Yeah, ahedonia. The donia. (laughs) I suffer from this donia problem where, so I acknowledge that music exists and is important, but it creates absolutely no emotional response inside of me. I have, I'm like passively joyless when I listen to music. So, (laughs) but I recognize that that is weird and unusual so i researched it of course which is how i tackle every problem and i found out that it's an actual thing there are research and researchers in barcelona that have dedicated themselves to understanding the five percent of the population that has absolutely no could give two shoots because we're not cursing we're not cursing on this we're not cursing on this this podcast nope no two shoots about music so why are they like that do they are they completely incapable of of registering any emotional response to anything? Uh, do they hate children? Do they hate sunshine? No, we don't hate sunshine. I mean, children. That's more of like a personal preference, yeah. Okay. But music is one thing that this sort of group shares. They're very normal about everything else. They're not normal about this. So I recognize I have this problem, and I want to do something about it. I want to tackle this problem. I want to find a cure. Masha. Thank you. So I've decided that hip hop could be my cure. Love it. Yeah, right? So that's where I am. I'm like looking, I'm approaching hip hop as as an academic would. So I am starting from the beginning. Yeah. And I'm being very linear and sort of working my way to contemporary contemporary times. This is so nerdy and I just Do you I, love I, it? I vibe with it. Yeah, you love it. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. Construct things like that. Yes. And that's why everybody's like, I don't know if I want to hang out with too frequently because Well, you don't want to hang out with but so okay so so you're you're starting from the beginning you're listening to stuff like yeah. what about nothing but a G thing like do you like what what stands out to you is it just I think it's the riff it's the beat, it it's, the the beat? Yeah. it's the you know I think one of the reasons why I had I've had a hard time developing a like a musical a musical self is that I have a really hard time hearing the words maybe I just have hearing loss maybe that's why I don't <laughs> appreciate music but so so. Like, the words matter a lot to me, as you can probably tell. Like, I like words. Um, so when I like music, because I can't pick up on the words all that easily, it's usually the beat. Yeah. So I like the beat of that song. Well, Dr. Dre will do it for you. Dr. Dre will do it for you. I mean, like, when I listen to the lyrics of Dr. Dre's song, I've been kind of like, I don't know about this. <laughs> is, is maybe this, okay? this is not a good idea. You know? <laughs> Guys, let's talk about yeah, this. Yeah, <laughs> like, maybe we could, like, come up with another word for women, you know, <laughs> yeah. except for that one that you keep using, you know. All right. But I love the beat. The beat's yeah. amazing, right? Yeah. So, like, and so that's why I've, like, the Dr. Dre's Chronic. Yeah. And Ice Cube's 
um, what is it? America, America's, America's Most, Most Wanted. Wanted. Look at you. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm really feeling, but I'm not really feeling NWA straight out of Compton. Okay. There's that one song about the police that I'm okay with. <laughs> I can't actually give you the title since it would violate the F- terms F- of our F- podcast agreement. Yes. F- the police. Yes. For the kids listening. Yeah. Da police. Yeah. Da police. Da police. So um, I like that song, but the, the rest of that one is not really resonating with me. But yeah. So I went to a hip-hop concert uh, in New York a few weeks ago. It was, and he was, apparently, I find all this out, like, afterwards, because I have no idea. My friend's like, what's going on? I'm like, all right, like a sheep, you know, like to the yeah, slaughter. Right. So I go, walk into this tiny back room in Brooklyn, all guys, all guys, all clearly there for the music. Like, <laughs> not there for anything as, else. As opposed to something else, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the guy's name is Royce to five nine. Yeah, he's dope. He's dope. He's yeah. dope. So I, like, got emotional. I was like... <laughs> you were feeling it. Yeah, I was feeling you it. Were feeling you know, I kid. felt something for, like, the first time. He rapped this... There's a song that he does about his... Kind of, like, uh, the moment, that pivotal moment when he decided that he was going to be a rapper or when, like, his life changed and, like, hip-hop became the thing he was going to do. Um, and it's about... It's the day his son is born and his grandmother dies. Yeah. Do you know the song? And I lost it. I lost my shoot at that song. <laughs> I was shooting shoot all over the you place. You were doing so good with the rules, yeah. Jam. I gotta tell you. It, look, yeah, hip hop. Hip hop is the art of storytelling. Yes. And it, it usually it depends on what story you're telling. Right. And, and, what, and that determines how people can vibe with it or whether or not people vibe with it. Uh, Chris Rock has this great joke about how he loves hip hop, but it's hard to defend it. Yes, absolutely. And so when you hear Royce the Five Nine. Or you hear, you know, somebody like Most Def, Talib Kweli, right? People who are a bit more conscious. You can defend it. You can defend it when you hear, you know, uh, from the window. <laughs> Obviously, a little bit more difficult. Yeah. But yeah. I love that you're uh, you're getting into hip hop. I'm and trying. When when the podcast is done, uh, I'd be happy to slide you some recommendations. Please. I'm a I'm a hip hop and punk rock yes. aficionado. Yes, I'm not so much interested in the punk rock, but definitely you bring the say. yeah. <laughs> but bring the hip hop my way. Yeah, recommendations most needed. No nice. idea what I'm doing in this. Nice. Well, in this I, world. I uh, you're my friend, and I want to help your personal growth. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's what friends are for. Hey, we give knowledge to the people. Yeah. We give music recommendations to the people. That's what we do. Oh, the people are so blessed. I can't believe this is free. One hundred percent free. One hundred percent. But uh, as much as I could sit here and talk about music for the rest of this podcast. That's not actually why I brought you here. Yeah, that would be a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently. As we've discussed. Because yeah. you have done, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I brought you here, as I told folks in the intro, because not only do I think you're awesome, but also I think you're really sharp. I think you're smart. I think you have super interesting things to say. And I think uh, you're intellectually honest in a city full of intellectually dishonest people. Mm-hmm. Um, and you actually have some really cool stuff to talk about, not just generally speaking, but also based on cool stuff that you've done. And... For those of you that have listened to the previous episodes of the podcast, what we try to do, in addition to give knowledge to the people, is use this as a platform uh, to showcase talented Iranian Americans, of which you are one. So, thank you very much. Of course. Uh, without further ado, uh, you're a lawyer. Yeah. You're a lawyer. And <laughs> I think I, you just ruined it for the listener. <laughs> well, no, because you're a cool lawyer. And not all lawyers can make that claim. Yeah. You know, I, have I don't some, make that claim, by the I way. I have some lawyer friends. Yeah, I have some lawyers in my family, mm-hmm. so it comes in handy from time to time. Yes, it does. Uh, That's true. We are good to have around. you do a lot of cool stuff in your role as a lawyer. You're not just sitting in an office churning out legal briefs. Well, not not as of four weeks ago. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and even, <laughs> even when you were, 
right? Because you got to pay the bills. And I yeah, yeah, yeah. That. You were also bills, doing yeah. other cool stuff to feed the soul and make the world a better place. Yeah. So um, you are getting ready uh, to begin a teaching fellowship at NYU Law School. Correct. Which is awesome as it sounds. Yeah. First and foremost, but also I because you're not even 40 years old. Right? <laughs> I'm getting like, close. You're, you're, I know, we are. Yeah, we, we are. are. We're, we're old. Are. I got more gray than yeah. you. I, I shaved the beard well, so you can't tell just I, I got, right? it's, mine's fluffier, so it's easy to hide. That's, well, when the humidity comes out around Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. Very <laughs> That's right. So you're going and you're going to be do, doing a teaching fellowship at NYU Law School, mm -hmm. which, it, again, awesome as it sounds. It's awesome because you're probably going to be the youngest teaching fellow they've had, if not one of the youngest teaching fellows that no. they've had. No, they've got they've got young twenty nine year olds. Oh, they've got babies. Yeah, they've yeah, got yeah. Babies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They got youngins. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, we can talk more about. Well, them. you they are you are amongst the youngins. Yes. So tell the people what will you be doing at NYU? What mm -hmm. issues will you be researching and teaching? Because I imagine you'll be doing teaching as well. Yes. So, so I. To give the the listeners, who I'm sure, so curious to hear about my resume. Yes, they are. Uh, a bit more background. So I did most of my time as a lawyer. I like to call it doing time um, <laughs> uh, as uh, you know a, a litigator in private practice yeah. um, in D.C. So the vast majority of my lawyering experience has been like extremely practical. Um, and I'm a practical person, but I also, you know, I'm interested in giving knowledge to the people. Yes. Um, and in ideas and exploring issues, um, which wasn't really something I was doing a lot of as a practicing attorney. Yeah, so, okay. you know, I kind of was thinking about my next move. Where am I going to go next? I don't think I'm going to be doing this, you know, for a lot longer. Um, I want to sort of give my, like, that part of my brain that has... Like even and even stronger opinions than the person you're talking to right now, an opportunity to explore those opinions and those ideas. So academia had been something that I thought about for a long time for various reasons. I didn't seriously pursue it, although I kind of did my own legal, not legal, but academic writing thing a few years back and kind of dipped my toes in it. Liked it like the way the water felt. There you go. But, you know, you got to pay the bills. Yes, you you know, I get hungry. So, you know, so, so I didn't kind of, I didn't run with it at that point. But, you know, this year, this over the past year, I decided, you know, why not? You know, it's now or never. Yeah. I ha I'm not 40. Not no, no, no ill will to the 40 year olds out there. You know, it's a great, it's a great, it's the new, yeah. It's the new whatever you want it to be. <laughs> yeah. It's the forty-year-olds that are telling me once you hit forty, man. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. The forty-year-olds are telling. All right, well you then it's their own fault. It's here. their own fault. But yeah, I think yeah. it, if I don't do it now, I might never do it. That's so, right. so I went for it. I applied to a bunch of different ones. Um, the NYU one when it happened it was like that magic moment you know it was like that Royce to five nine song you know <laughs> like the elevator opens and like NYU law school standing right there yeah um and it was just it felt magical and I accepted the offer I officially started June 1st Congrats. um the teaching will start in August um I will be teaching in what they call their lawyering program so you know relying on those years of practical experience to impart knowledge to the children. Yes. Um, but at the same time, since it's the only class I have to teach, I will, and I'm expected to, uh, do my own uh, writing and research. So I'm going to actually get to uh -huh. talk. The plot thickens. Yes, the plot thickens. So, you know, I, you know, while I was working in these law firms, um, 
I really hope someone from one of those law firms listens to this and finds out about all the things I was doing on the side. Um, <laughs> I was really quiet about the other things I was doing, you know. So I was like uh, underground, essentially. I was in hiding. I was like you were an incogn- underground MC. I was incognito. Yeah, yeah. I was ign- uh, incognito jam sheety. So <laughs> I wasn't really open about the things I was doing, and I definitely wasn't publishing a lot when I was, you know, when I was working. So, um, so now I get to actually like have a voice, yeah. you know. So I started tweeting a lot more than I than I used to, you know. And it's weird. It's weird when you haven't had a voice and you suddenly have one right now. Like you feel like, should I be saying this? Can I be saying this? You think of the, about the consequences of what you do a lot more than I think you would otherwise. Yeah. Um, so it's been kind of a kind of an uphill uphill battle for me to talk publicly about the things I I, I really think about and care about. But this fellowship is it's do or die. So I'm gonna do it. Absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. Super inspiring. Super inspiring. Well, you know, that's why I'm here. You got to do what you believe in, man. Got to do what you believe in. Absolutely. So speaking of doing what you believe in, uh, what kinds of things do you think you might be researching while you're at this fellowship? So right now I'm really into terrorism. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I consider myself kind of the bard. Of terrorism, you, you know the the uh, the Homer, if you will, um, of this of this area. Um, a lot of the work I did in private practice was uh, revolved around uh, civil terrorism cases. Okay, mostly against, uh, well, against governments, against some state-owned companies, um, kind of tangentially sometimes. So sometimes the the underlying case was incidental to what I was doing. But anyway, it was always like one or two degrees of separation from these terrorism cases. And, you know, there's a lot of messed up stuff, you know, that goes on in this particular area of the law. I mean, there's a lot of messed up stuff that goes on in lots of areas of the law. But um, in terrorism, like on the civil side and especially on the criminal side, you see a lot of things that you wouldn't expect to see. Um, So on the civil side... They're, by and large, you know, most civil cases actually against, so usually they're against uh, third parties. So mm-hmm. banks have become the new favorite target. Um, and so the argument often is, is that they often unknowingly facilitated payment transfers and things like that. So a lot of these cases actually don't go forward. But one of the cases, the one I worked on, did go forward and went to I went to jury trial and uh, they were found guilty. They were found guilty in the hundreds of millions of dollars. The bank, um, you probably won't be surprised to hear, was named Arab Bank. And I think what a coincidence! What a coincidence! What, what would you? What, who, what are the chances? Who would have thunk it? Right. Um, I think the fact that it was that bank had something to do with the fact that it was the only bank so far. Um, where the the the, the 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 plaintiffs have been successful, um, so so there that's the civil side. Um, but generally, it's actually hard, pretty hard to bring these cases. On the criminal side, you also have sort of cases of secondary liability, third parties, right? People who, in many cases, unwitting unwittingly might have done something. Um, arguably that really didn't even support a terrorist group, but in the eyes of the government did, who are very easily found guilty. So there's this tension between on the civil side having it be a lot harder with the, with this one exception, and then you have on the criminal side it being, it seems like a lot easier. Yeah. You know, which is not how our criminal and civil laws work. It's usually reversed. I mean, so to what, to what extent do you think they're trying to make examples of people? And just and it's like meeting quotas. Is, is that part of it or no? No, I don't think it's meeting quotas. I think that I think it's about I think there's a very 
defined approach to prosecuting terrorism or using the courts as a tool in the war on terror that is playing out in these prosecutions. So I think that, um, I mean, I don't want to spoil it for for all my fans out there. (laughs) Now I don't need to write write the articles. But, like, you know, I think that – um, I think that the criminal prosecutions are more informed by principles by the U.S.'s approach to uh, the, the military war on terror and its approach to the humanitarian law as applied to the military uh, war on terror than it is to criminal law. Okay. So I think that the criminal law, though it's obviously playing a central role in criminal prosecutions, is not in fact what's determining how those prosecutions are playing out. It's interesting because it doesn't seem like there is a, a metric for this. It seems like it's willy-nilly. So, for example, mm-hmm. you have absolutely nothing being done with regards to the Saudi government or uh, uh, members of the royal family linked to the Saudi government uh, as a result of 9-11. And there's actually some good reasons for that because there's dangerous precedent that can mm-hmm. be set if those lawsuits were pursued. Right. But then when you white out the word Saudi Arabia and put Iran in mm-hmm. with a pen... Then you have guys like Reza Banki getting put in jail right. uh, unjustly. Yeah. I, I don't know if you've heard this guy's story. If you guys mm-hmm. haven't heard Reza Banki's story, I mean, this guy was working at McKinsey. He wired his family some money. They threw him in jail. Oh, wow. Ruined his life. And now he's going around giving TED Talks and everything. Like, super, super heartbreaking, super inspiring story. Because This he, was a sanctions law thing? Or yeah, this was, was like a, a, yeah. a sanctions law thing. But I mean, you know, you're talking about sanctions law and then the connection to Iranian government is predicated on terrorism. Right. So that's why I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah. Like, I understand that different cases... Uh, have to have different metrics depending on the details, right. but it's not evenly applied. Well, so on the terrorism side, in order to actually even bring a, a criminal or a civil case, so the, the state, so it's obviously, we. I mean, we're both geniuses, right? So we, so, <laughs> yeah. so everyone else probably doesn't know this, but these are actually, there's actually a lot of politics involved you know in all of this. Yeah, I know, I know. There should be, we should have like a we should have like something that we like a bell that we ring whenever we say something super smart. Yeah. Um, so, um, so, so on the on the terrorism side, you have so in order to bring a case against a government or against a uh, an entity directly, yeah, um, or to bring a secondary liability case about material support of terrorism to an entity, that entity or government has to be designated. Um, a federal, uh, I think, a foreign terrorist organization. I can't remember exactly what the FTO what the acronym stands for, but it's something along those lines. Yeah. Which is a determination made this by the State Department, which yes. is obviously not a court, you know, which it's is obviously... It's entirely political. Which is, so it's entirely political. So it means that only certain types of so-called terrorist organizations or state sponsors of terrorism are getting funneled into the judicial system at all. Right. You know? So the one, you know, as you maybe heard about, and I'm not sure where this where the bill currently stands, whether or not they passed it or whatever, but there was a bill or there has been a bill pending... I think on the Senate side, um, that would actually allow for a group of plaintiffs in a very specific case, I believe, to bring um, a case directly against Saudi Arabia. I really hope I got that right. I'm pretty sure that's what it says. You did. I did. And Obama threatened to veto it, you know, and he will totally veto it uh, because if he doesn't veto it, then Saudi Arabia will veto it. Like they will, <laughs> they'll be like, oh, by the way, they'll come out from under the table and they'll just, they'll veto it themselves. Um, but, but there is, so there are attempts being made. You know, I have, I don't necessarily think that the arena of terrorism should be expanded. You know, I don't think that we deal with the problems that we see on the civil and criminal side with terrorism by 
calling everything and everyone a terrorist. You Slippery know? slope. It's, yeah, I mean, it's already, that slope is already slick, you know? <laughs> Extremely slick. And yeah. people are slipping and sliding all over the place. Yeah. I think we need to seriously, unfortunately this is an unrealistic thing to, to suggest, but I really think that it's the only thing that will really bear bear any kind of positive fruit. I think we really need to think about the the continuing utility of this term. You know, particularly from a legal perspective, I think it's worthless at this point. I don't think it means anything anymore um, because it's been been so politicized, because it's been thrown around um, so so easily and so arbitrarily by so many different people and so many different governments. Um, you know, there are. This is not to say that mass violence is not our problem or is not something that we should be concerned about. We absolutely should be. But we're only looking at a tiny subset of mass violence yeah. because we are so focused on, is there terrorism involved? If there isn't, then we don't really care, Yeah. sadly. Yeah, it's super interesting. It reminds me, like, what you just said is not only what I'd be inclined to agree, but it reminds me of a conversation I had with a good buddy of mine uh, who lives in Egypt. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we were talking about Iran being a state sponsor of terror, mm-hmm. right? And uh, I said, look, I, you know, my time in the State Department, uh, I understand why they're on the list, uh, but they're not the top state sponsor of terrorism. Saudi Arabia is. Mm-hmm. And I firmly believe that. Mm-hmm. And Saudi Arabia's n- non-inclusion on that list mm-hmm. leads me to believe that it's a politicized list. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like, well, I don't know. I mean, I hear you. The Saudis should be on the list. But look at Iran's support for Assad. Like, that makes them by far the top state sponsor of terrorism. I'm like, is that terrorism, though? Mm. Is it? I don't know. I mean, because that's the thing. If, if that's the metric, wouldn't Western countries by far right. be right. the biggest state sponsors of terror? Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you define it? Right. Like, where's the cutoff? Right. There that's, is no cutoff. Exactly. And that's why people, and that's people. I, I don't want to blame the people. We're here for the people. We're here for the people. We're trying to edge you. We're trying to drop a knowledge for the people. The powers that be, you know? Yeah. So the, the, the elite, right? love this term because it can be whatever they need it to be whenever they they need it right yeah. so it has it is the most malleable uh enduring you know uh, ever ever relevant and ever um potent concept that any government could use you know you throw terrorism out there and everyone runs through the hills or hits the floor, you know? It will get, it truly, the word, the concept of terrorism terrorizes people. You know, more yes. so than actually what's involved in terrorism, right? Because as we've talked about, that that's mass violence. That happens all the time in this country and people don't see all, all that terrorized by it, right? right? But the very word terrorism, like, strikes fear into the heart of people, you know? And that's its utility. And that's, in my mind, why it actually does, it serves it doesn't serve the people's interest, right? It serves the interest of, of those who are trying to hold people down. Fully. I trying mean, to hold you down, people. Don't, don't let the man hold you down. Don't let the man hold you down. Now, you raise an interesting point. That or is, Hillary. That, well, <laughs> boy, we can go there if you want. Yeah, no, no, we could go we there. We can go there if you want. Yeah, yeah no. Yeah, maybe I'm, after uh, I've had another swig of chai. There you go. Uh, but before we go there, I, I want to ask you one question because you said something that's super interesting to me. As I knew you would, which is why you were on the short list. I mean, I didn't want to. I, I, I have my notes here, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, she really has no notes. <laughs> she, she's, she's freestyling. This is all from, straight from the dome. Um, you, you mentioned this idea of, uh, you know, we have tremendous amounts of mass violence taking place in, in this country mm-hmm. uh, on a far too frequent basis. Mm-hmm. And yet 
it doesn't get called terrorism. Mm-hmm. And that bothers me. Mm-hmm. Because when somebody that looks like you and me does it, it's terrorism. When somebody that looks like Hillary Clinton does it. <laughs> That's a segue. Every Hillary. time she holds like a, yeah. every time she gives Hillary a speech, Clinton is not a terrorist. Act of mass violence. Yeah. And I'm probably going to vote for it yeah. because I'm not voting for Donald Trump. Um, but why, why is that? Like uh, this, and now I'm just asking your personal opinion. So why, why is it not terrorism when white people do it? Well, so I think to go back to what I said before, I don't actually think that it's a, I don't think that we're served by we're best served by expanding the use of the term you know i think we should completely get rid of it frankly you know i i i don't think that using it um for whoever i don't care if we use it for everybody i don't care if we just use it for me no one else you know if i'm the only person out there who gets this word label i i sorry i went off the track a little bit but like what i'm saying is that i feel like I, I, I understand your question, but I would sort of push back on the premise, you know, that sure, is the fair. problem that we only apply it to a certain group of people or is a problem that we're, we're using a term that um, has become devoid of e- any real legal significance. And I'm, you know, again, talking from a legal perspective, because I think we're very clear on the on the political significance of the right, word, right, right? Right, right. But the legal significance of the word is, is pretty much it, it, there's nothing. There's nothing there. And so. If we are only going to use it for political for political ends, then I think that um, then I think we absolutely have to get rid of it, you know, because yeah. the political ends it's clearly being used towards are to marginalize certain groups, right? People who, for whatever reason, have been defined um, as enemies of the state, you know, as people who should be socially controlled, as people who need to be monitored and regulated, whose comings and goings we need to know something about, you know. Yeah. So. It, it, unless we're okay with that, you know, and I'm not okay with that. Not I th- at all. I think that I think that it has to be eliminated altogether. But I mean, so so pushing back on your premise, I did that. So I've done what I feel like I need to do. There but you go. to answer your question, I mean, again, like I mean, it's very obviously, you know, a result of um, you know a, a post 9/11 mindset where. The threat is very narrowly defined. The threat to U.S. national security is very n- narrowly defined along the lines of terrorism. And terrorism is Arabs. Terrorism is Muslims. Terrorism is essentially brown people. So Sikhs, you know, who yeah. are, not, are not Muslim but look stereotypically Muslim. Yeah. Um, you know, these, these, are, these are the terrorists. And so, you know, if you are a white guy, you're not considered to be a real threat because your ideology is assumed to align with American ideology. So, right, even if you go out to a to a movie theater, you know, or a kindergarten, and you kill tens of, like, dozens of people, at the end of the day, you know, that's it, you're done. You know, you, that's probably the only incident of mass violence you'll engage in. We're good. And, but you're not threatening the ultimate superstructure of this country. You're not... What you did, you didn't do because you don't believe in, quote, American democracy or American values. You did it for whatever reason. Maybe you did it for financial reasons. I mean, think about organized crime, right, back in, like, the 20th century. Organized crime was a massive threat to the U.S. government, and it was treated as a massive threat to the U.S. government. But I honestly wonder whether or not today, if the mafia still existed, 
and there was terrorism, which would be more, which the U.S. government would find to be more of a threat. And I would wager that it would be terrorism. I would wager the same. You know, that it wouldn't be organized crime, which was so devastating to the United States and would and would still be devastating, right? Because it's organized crime. I mean, when you have crime that's being, that's so hierarchical and so well done, you think of ISIS, that's organized crime as far as, far as I'm concerned. It's much more deadly than you say that lone wolf attack or whatever you have. Right. So in any case, so I think that at the end of the day, yes, it's race and religion that play a large role in it but I think that it's also and and this is very connected to race and religion a fear of ideas and ideology and a fear of threats to America's ideas and ideology that for the US government Islam and Arabness has become it has become an ideological threat yeah it's interesting to me because on the one hand I agree with everything that you just said right Mm -hmm. Um, not surprisingly because I think you're really smart (laughs) <laughs> but I also grapple with this idea of ideology, and I think that we, like, ideology consistently, in my view, takes a back seat mm-hmm. to more practical geopolitical interests. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we we well, have a we have a big problem when the Iranians try to uh, export their ideology right. across the Middle East. Right. Right. We do not have a problem when the Saudis export their ideology across the world. Not mm-hmm. the Middle East, the world. Why is that? The Saudis play by the rules of the game right. that we have set up. Mm-hmm. They want more America. They're begging for it. They can't wait till Obama leaves. Oh, yeah. Can't wait. And they're not yeah. shy about saying it. Right. Right? Um, but the Iranians don't play by our rules of the game. Mm-hmm. And they haven't for, since 1979. Mm-hmm. And so I, it's almost like there are a variety of factors that dictate what American policy will be. Right. Particularly dependent on what part of the world we're talking about. Mm-hmm. But I do think that geopolitical interests trump ideology when forced to choose. Who doesn't want to have their cake and eat it too? Right. right. If, if, you, if you can have both, great. Yeah. But in the real world, oftentimes you can't. Right. So I think that the United States is very much, you know, obviously the, U- the U.S. is very well equipped to exercise its hard power, you know. But I think the U.S., the U.S., the U.S. government um, and the establishment are probably even more wedded and even more protective of the uh, pull and attraction of American, this idea of America, the idea of America. You know, America is founded on this, you know, theoretically amazing notion that you can come to a place and you can achieve your dreams. Right. This is the founding lie, right? But the but the founding um, narrative of this country. Few countries actually have a founding narrative like that, you know. In fact, well, none have this exact same one, right? right. But few few even have this origin story the way the U.S. does, right? So I think uh, ideas and ideology are very important to the U.S. government. Um, I think that. Um, exporting America's values is extremely important to the U.S. I mean, look no at, question. that's why USAID exists. No question. You know, that's yeah, yeah. a lot of what the State Department does, as you know. Um, so I think that they are rightly concerned by competing ideologies, right? Um, but I take your point. I mean, the Saudi Arabia ha- has been very clear and open about the fact that it has exported its very particular notions of Islam 
throughout the world for at least the last 40 years, if not, if not longer. But let's also remember that for a while, up until, let's say, the 90s, that ideology was not an ideology the U.S. government had any problem with. You know? uh, exactly. They were, it was great. It was an antidote to communism. That's you right. know, It was a way of fighting America's war in another way. Yep. America's ideological war in another way. That's a great point. Right? So yep. America is very aware that you need I- ideology is very important that ideas still matter. I mean, some people argue we live in a post-ideological world. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true either. I don't think that's true. But I, I, think, and I think the word ideology is also a lot more expansive than, than what, what people oftentimes define it as. But in any case, um, so I think, I think America does have a reason to be afraid of ideas, of other ideas, ideas that, that compete with it. But... Um, but when you look at Iran, right, and, and this is the argument they raise with Iran, right? Oh, this is what Iran's doing. Iran is exporting their their ideas and their ideologies. People who are, you know, I don't even know if pro-Iran is the right word, but let's just say more reasonable, you know, will come <laughs> yeah, out. The, met, the bar's low. <laughs> yeah, the bar's low. We'll come out and say, well, actually, no, Iran is actually extremely strategic, you know, that they are they are pursuing their geopolitical interests first and foremost. That, and that is our response, right? So when, when people come and say, oh, but Iran is ideological, we come and say, no, 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 it's not, because we also recognize the power of coming back with the pragmatic and the practical, particularly when that thing, that country, that organization has been defined along ideological terms primarily to discredit it um, in the Western world. So it's a complicated dance. Um, I don't think, like I said, so I think for the United States, it's not about ideology versus pragmatism. I think at the end of the day, it's about... um, you know, in terms of who are its friends and who are its enemies, I think it's a, a you know a little bit more complicated than that. Um, but it definitely the United States definitely uses ideology as a sword, sure. as a double-edged sword, right? So it uses it for its own benefit, but then it uses to tar uh, with a very negative brush countries or institutions or whatever that it doesn't like. Yeah. They're so ideological. We're not ideological. We are very practical. Really, neoconservatives are totally just pragmatic. Yeah, you know they have a very particular ideology about what American Americans' foreign presence should be like. They are very, they are very ideological. Very, group. yeah, very. They're they're also crazy people. They're crazy. Yeah, yeah. that you know, I'm allowed to speak my mind on this podcast. Uh, yeah, no, it, that that's super interesting. Well, it's super interesting, and I think your students. Uh, are in store for I know uh, brace. some very exciting brace yourself students brace yourself I, I, I can't wait to see your syllabus <laughs> I want to I see your maybe I can uh, audit one of your you class. should you I should go ahead yeah, yeah. New York audit your class you would be my most precocious student uh, precocious <laughs> is the word precocious is the word because I have a big mouth that's true um, so I've got one piece of paper sitting in front of me for those of you listening at home um, just kind of like some bullet points that talk about all these cool things that, that Jams has done. It's very oh. nicely organized. Uh, well, it's very you, neat. You know what I'm saying? I got, yeah. I got, you know, I got, a, lot, got a lot of stuff going on yeah, up yeah, here yeah. In, in this mind of mine. So to, to organize it is usually means that the listener benefits at the end of the day. Let's hope so. Let's hope so. Uh, another cool thing you've done. You wrote a book. I wrote a book. You wrote a book. Yeah, it's and, been a while. And, I had to reread the book in advance of this podcast. And the, and the, the people appreciate yeah. it. But it's super interesting because I remember... Uh, you and me and, and Semira, we, uh, uh, shout out to Semira if she yeah. was listening to Woo-hoo. this. You know, uh, she's back in America she now, will, isn't she? She's back in America. Yeah. Yeah. Fa- yeah. Fahri Fahri's daughter, uh, that's her claim to fame. Yes. <laughs> I'm just, that's Fahri Fahri's claim to fame, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. 
Shout out to Femira. Welcome yeah. back to America. She's awesome. Uh, she is awesome. So They're you, both awesome. They, yeah. Uh, Femira yeah. is like the Michael Jordan. Yeah, I mean, the, the, have you met the entire family? I've only met those two. The father, the 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 son, the brother. I mean, they're they're all of me. I met them all. I have no doubt. Maybe I'll introduce you one day. I, well, they're two for two so far. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I'm they sure are. The rest they're are four great. for four. They're four for four. Yeah. So you, me, Samia, we're at the passenger, old school yes. passenger, before oh, it closed cool. down. Yeah. And I remember talking. You're like, I think I'm gonna write a book. And I was like, that's cool. <laughs> Best of luck in your future endeavors. And the reason why that was my mentality was yeah. because I can't to this day come up with the idea of what book I want to write. Fast forward. I don't even remember how long. And then I get an email saying, come to my book release party. And I was like, jams, you did it. <laughs> so uh, the book, for those of you listening at home, is called The Future of the Arab Spring, Civic Entrepreneurship in Politics, Art, and Technology Startups. Uh, I bought it. You did? I read it. No way. Yes, because I didn't get to go to the book release party. Okay. I remember Rosa Eftahari. Shout out to Rosa. Yeah. Email me. She's like, Rosa, you need to come to the party. Oh, yeah. And she was there. She was like, amazing. Rosa, I can't you know? party more tonight. There's nothing <laughs> to do. But I got the book. I read it. It's excellent. Uh, everybody should go on Amazon and buy a copy to support Jams. Yeah, girls got to eat. Tell the people a little bit about uh, what your book is about, uh, kind of the process of researching it, the publication yeah. of it, and... Um, obviously, it's been what three years now. Three years, now? yeah. So give the people an update on um, okay. what you wrote and, yeah. and how things have or haven't changed uh, in, in 2016. Okay, yeah, great. So I don't have to write a second edition. Perfect. So yeah, this is the podcast. Um, so uh, so I wrote this. Uh, so to give a little bit more context, so. Um, I run this website called Mufta, which is the next thing. Which I'm is the ask next thing on the list. We won't, we won't get into it too much, but I'll just say that that's mm-hmm. sort of how it was through running the magazine that I came up with the idea of the book. So, the, the magazine uh, deals a lot with the Middle East. Um, it was uh, alive and kicking, and still is now, but definitely was alive and kicking during the sort of beginning days of the Arab Spring. Um, so I was coming across all of these different stories and these different people who were in these countries that were in the throes of revolution and were doing really interesting things. You know, they were coming up with interesting groups. They were doing interesting projects. They were, um, you know, just really dynamic and fascinating people. And I wanted to figure out, like, and there were a lot of them, you know, and they were in, in a variety of different countries. They were in Egypt. They were in Yemen. They were in Tunisia. They were in Syria. Um, they were in Bahrain. They were all over the place. You know, they were in other countries. You yeah. know, they yeah. weren't necessarily even going through the revolutions, but you know, they were like, you know, they were they were right there. They were right ne- they were right next door. So they were getting some of this stuff as well. Um, and so I wanted to explore what this was and whether or not it was a real phenomenon, you know, or whether it was just these kind of like individual stories. So um, so I started looking into it. Um, I started um, interviewing some of these people. Um, about the the work that they were doing. So it really ran the gamut of, you know, from people who were starting, you know, what you'd think of more as like kind of bread and butter butter political organizations to people doing, um, you know, movie collectives to um, our art collectives to uh, organizations providing social services. There were even some tech startups that had a really civically minded purpose to them. I mean, it was everything. So I speak to these, I start talking to these people, interviewing about what they're doing. People love to talk about themselves and even more like to talk about the things they care about. Yes. So, um, so I got really good, um, you know, really long, very detailed interviews from people about the work they were doing. And this was, so I, so, I mean, this is maybe I shouldn't admit to this, but I did the writing and research for this over the course of like 
four months. Um, You're a machine. I'm a machine. That's right. So like <laughs> I, I basically shut everything else in my life down and stayed at home for four months and developed carpal tunnel, which I still suffer from, um, in order to <laughs> in order to make this happen. Um, but the real hardcore research and stuff was in the in the course of that four months, um, and um, so it was a specific period of time. You know, this was. Uh, the spring of 2013, I actually finished writing the book about two or three weeks after um, Mohammed Morsi was toppled in Egypt, which I was like, no, <laughs> no. Um, but we'll come back to that because yeah. I will explain to you why I think that that was actually an extension of, of this phenomenon, but a negative one. Um, anyway, um, so so the so the Arab Spring or whatever you want to call it, I you know words matter but I'm, I'm not gonna you know get into a debate about that particular one um the airstream was i think very much still kind of full-blown you know definitely in egypt um yemen um bahrain had been sort of cut down obviously syria was 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 very violent but you know it was still like it was better than it is now right um so um so i put this book together i decided there was a, a like a real movement there that there was something that was happening that was common to these various countries. And I, said, and I called it civic entrepreneurship because I, for whatever reason, decided to come up with a really wonky word. You did not uh, get more wonky you know, than civic not, entrepreneurship. Yeah. I mean, why not? My, it was my homage to DC. You there know? You go. You know? DC appreciated. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that for <laughs> DC. Um, you, can't, you can't take a girl out of DC, right? That's right. You can take a girl out of DC, you can't take yeah, the DC, DC out, out of the girl. girl. Yep. So, um, so, and essentially the way I define that term is, uh, you know, any citizen-driven... Um, effort that mobilizes the grassroots um, for the sake of the public good. You yeah. know, um, there are a, a couple of other elements, but that's essentially what the phenomenon is. Um, and that's what these organizations were. There were people who would just come together. Oftentimes they didn't even know each other before the revolution started. They met in squares or in other places where they gathered to protest. Um, when the protests ended, they kind of decided they wanted to keep this this you know this ethos this revolutionary ethos going they felt more invested in their communities they felt like they finally had a voice and they didn't want to lose that voice so they gathered together with other people they formed sometimes formal oftentimes informal groups to deal with very discrete issues you know the one i like to talk about the most is one in egypt called mosedin which is um, a film collective these guys met in tents in tahrir square in january and february 2011 um, they uh, started filming what was happening in the square just for the sake of it. That eventually turned into this film collective where they started to document um, the various efforts by the regime to kind of push back on the protesters. So after the, the protest ended in February, I mean, the revolution wasn't over. So they were kind of keeping track of what was happening. Um, they started bringing in more and more people. They started then doing trainings. Um, open-air film screenings of the movies they put together. Um, originally, the movies were pretty, as you might imagine, DIY, but they got a lot more sophisticated, uh, sophisticated and a lot more sort of professionally done over the course of, of the years. They started a YouTube channel that became extremely successful. So, I mean, these guys were, almost all of them, virtual strangers, uh, January 1st, 20, 2011. Um, by the end of the year, they were this really solid, um, civically-minded team that continued to do work for, for several years. So. About that? And there's a lot of that, you know, and I wanted to understand both um, how common this was, what it meant, um, where it was coming from, um, and um, how it could really be like the key, I thought, or a, an important part of the revolutions really taking root in these societies and growing. Yeah.
Okay. Okay. So. All right. That was boring. No, it wasn't boring Sorry. at all. The book is pretty much a reflection of that explanation. I don't. FYI, the book is not boring. Is the book is not boring. But you know, you just said all this great stuff, and that begs the question. Yeah. So you you're researching, you write, you publish, and now with the benefit of 2020 hindsight. Yeah. Fast forward three years. Yeah. What do you think nailed it, and what do you think? Huh. That didn't pan out the way I thought it was going to. So, so things were already good. So, as I mentioned, Morsi was ousted about two to three weeks before I finished the manuscript. Yeah. So, I got a nice little, I got an opportunity to briefly address um, how this could go really, really wrong. Yeah. Um, and it has <laughs> gone really, really wrong. In, yes. In Egypt, in particular, um, this phenomenon, this phenomenon of people coming together from the grassroots and working to bring about change for the public good was essentially the protests that ousted Morsi. Yeah. They were grassroots. Um, They obviously brought out a lot of people. Yeah. And in the minds of those people, this was for the betterment of Egypt, you know? Right. But what became clear after these protests happened, and even I think right before there were some stories about this, was that the organizers of these protests were aligned with members of the establishment. 100%. 100%. People like uh, Najib Sawiris, who was the head of one of Egypt's biggest companies, if not the biggest company, Orozcom at the time, really powerful, wealthy Egyptian businessman who'd become very political after the revolution started, a bunch of other sort of holdovers from the Mubarak regime. So this was not... This was not civic entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship in the way I envisioned it, you know. It was essentially an alignment between, you know, a, a, a narrow group of people at the grassroots level with the elite uh, for purposes that essentially and ultimately fulfilled the elite's objectives. So if I were to go back and write the book now, I would have, like, rules, rules of engagement for civic entrepreneurs. Oh, let's uh, hear them. You know? So things that you do's and don'ts, you know? So absolutely do not align with anybody who's part of the establishment. You cannot do that. Because they will co-op. Because they will, yes, they will F you, you know? (laughs) So stay away from that. Yeah. Number two, um, you must remain disobedient. So that kind of connects to number one, you know? So the point often i think though the real benefit and value of these of these groups and of this phenomenon is to act as a foil you know to push back against the establishment you know so disobedience is essentially about not going along with the status quo right so you do not go along with the status quo that's really important um tip number three you know um you cannot divisive ideologies are not your friend sectarianism um so so divisive sectarianism because i think that Appreciations of difference based on religion are not inherently bad. It's when you use them for exclusionary purposes that they're bad. Yes. Islamism, when, again, it's used for um, exclusionary purposes, because, again, it's not like Islam's going to go away. You know, like there are ways of doing Islamism that, that, that aren't exclusionary. So divisive ideologies are not your friend. You should not embrace them. You should tell them to go home. You, know, you, should, not, you should not engage with those ideologies. Um, that's tip number three. Let's tip number four. Um, there are more tips. Those are the ones I can remember right now. Yeah, you can say them if and when they come to you. I'll, I'll let you know if it's they... It's interesting if that the you... So, as I hear you talk about Egypt and you list off do's and don'ts, yeah. I had a deja vu. I had flashbacks to Iran 2009 uh-huh. when I'm sitting at the State Department and the proverbial S hits the fan yeah. and everybody's like, 
what does this mean? What do we do? How do we explain this? Because right. Secretary Clinton wants to know. Right. And so what I essentially did is I put together, um, I think I can say this. <laughs> I, like, I well, touch we'll myself, hey, we'll find yeah. out. <laughs> uh, I, I put together this paper that essentially said, like, these are the factors that go into a uh, revolutionary or non-revolutionary situation. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm sitting here trying to remember what, uh, what I highlighted, but essentially it was, uh, do you have charismatic leadership? Mm-hmm. Do you have coherent ideology? So uh-huh. thank you, not divisive ideology. Yeah. Uh, does the state maintain its monopoly on violence? Mm-hmm. So are the armed forces, uh, right. the military, the police, are they going out and beating up people? Right. Or are they going right. to the other side? And um, uh, is there elite cohesion? Is there cohesion mm-hmm. amongst the political elites? Yeah. Because if that start to phrase. Yeah. So it, it basically all those things and right. a couple of other things like you, I can't remember everything, have to completely go out the window right. for a revolutionary type situation to happen. And then if the revolutionary situation types happens, right. as every Iranian knows, right. there's no guarantee right. that what's coming down the pike right. is going to be better than what you just got rid right. of. Right. So it's a super interesting thing where now I, you fast forward to, to the present day and, and I look at what Obama is going through with regards to the criticisms on his Syria policy, mm-hmm. some of which are fully warranted, yeah. right? But some of which totally disingenuous and essentially trying to push America into another war in the Middle right, East. Right, right. And, uh, man, I don't envy that guy. No. I mean, you know, I never thought I'd say this, but I'm going to miss him. You know, I never thought that that would yeah. actually be something I would <laughs> yeah. cop to. But, but it, yeah, it, I don't I don't envy him either. I mean, he got, I mean, he was kind of like, in a way, the Mohammed Morsi of, of America, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm surprised. That, I mean, to his credit, he was not ousted, you know, but, you know, with, with the Congress that, that was the way it was, with an economy that was the way it was, totally. you know, the and the instability, frankly, that has like marked the the, the last few years. Um, yeah. Political. I mean, people have become more politically conscious in the United States in a lot of ways. I think sure. since 2008. I mean, maybe before then, but you know, it really seems like for better or for worse, right? So some of that political consciousness is not as the like stuff that I want, you know? Like I'm not, I I wish that neo-Nazis were not, you know, protesting around Sacramento or anywhere else. You know, I wish the Tea Party didn't exist. But the fact is that it does, and it, it in part is you know a, a reaction to Obama. But then you also have Occupy, and you have the Black Lives Matter movement, and you have other things That's that right. like I'm much more down with. So you have, I think, a general increase in political consciousness. But like that's actually not that fun for <laughs> for a leader, you know, you know, because that means that there is um, a lot more that you need to contend with, right? Yeah. So you didn't just have a Congress. You had a lot of other things going on as well. One hundred percent, and blatant racism being at the top of the list. Yeah. But, so. I, I, I don't know about you. I had like what I call three stages of Obama. Oh, okay. Let's hear where, this. Let's uh, see like, if I have this too. Like, I, I don't drank, think I had more than one. I drank Kool-Aid like fully. Oh, 07, you did. 08. I was like, this guy. No way. Like, you know, he is going to come in I'm and shocked. he's going to do. Yeah, so was I. Yeah. Because I was after Bush. By I was, yourself. Wait, wait, I'm shocked by you. Yeah. I, I'm surprised by your, that, you, that you drank the Kool-Aid. So am I with the okay. 2020 hindsight. Okay, okay. Because I was so cynical after Bush. Mm-hmm. And I continue to believe that George W. Bush is the worst president in our lifetime. My personal opinion. I'm not uh-huh. speaking on behalf of Nyack for all the haters who listen to this <laughs> podcast try to look for gems. Iranian Republicans. What are you thinking? Yeah. Sorry. But then, you know, I, I, I drank the Kool-Aid and I was like, yes, this guy, he's going to come in and he's going to do it. And I should have known better because you come in. And then, uh, as my former State Department bosses used to tell me, uh, you have to inject some political realism mm-hmm. into the policy recommendations and, and policy pursuits that you have. And then I, that was so, first stage Obama, I drank the Kool-Aid. 
right? Yes, we can. That's yeah. Second stage Obama, like super cynical. Why are you still droning people? Why are you <laughs> continuing the war in Afghanistan? More why are you doing? Yeah. Why are you doing all of these things that mm-hmm. are that are not good? Why, mm-hmm. why are you not doubling down on diplomacy with Iran? Uh, why are you letting Congress dictate the terms of the debate on a variety of issues, etc., etc., etc.? And then I can't remember what. It, maybe it was like 2013. Obama round round two was it term it, it, two? It was. Um, this is probably the best we're gonna get. get yeah. In terms of what the American political you hit rock bottom. Yeah. You hit rock bottom. And, and so yeah, and you realize it, it was like the new cynicism. Where right. The cynicism yeah. that I had under Bush was it's optimistic cynicism. Oh my God, the country's coming apart at the seams. Right. And now the cynicism under Obama is this guy's struggling to keep it together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's gonna get even worse. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So appreciate what you have. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that's where I'm at now. Okay. Like every now and then I tweet to Obama and I'm like, six more months and you're free. Five more months. <laughs> you kinda, t- kinda you kinda tweet to him? Yeah, Aw. You do like a countdown? Yeah. Job. I feel for the guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure he appreciates it. He's like this that resume sheet. For those know? of you at home, such a good guy. Go on Twitter, or not on Twitter. For God's sakes, don't go on Twitter. Go on Google and look at pictures of Obama in 2007 and look at pictures of him now. I know. This poor it's man. It's so sad. I know. Yeah. He's like a Lord of the Rings character. <laughs> yes. I mean, he has like seen, but he's got taken a beating. Yeah. A big beating, you know? Yeah. On the other hand, I think Michelle looks amazing. Yeah. Uh, Michelle is like the other, the opposite side. You know, Obama's like this curve, you know? Sorry, listeners. I don't <laughs> I don't know the name for this curve. This curve. And, and Michelle is like that curve, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah. But anyway. Anybody that's taking an economics class, <laughs> sure you know what James is talking about. Right regression curve, you know, yeah, something that like that. That sounds like a fancy Yeah, that sounds like the right word, the right word. We should have Google open so I can, you we know. We should totally you know, have the Google. They'll make this conversation way more sophisticated. As my father calls it, the Googles. The Google. <laughs> and then, and then, oh, you know what? Iranians invented Google. Yeah, Iranians invented Google. Yeah, 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 Google. Google. Invent. <laughs> that's really the question we should be asking ourselves. Um, um, but there's one more thing I wanted to ask you about before I let you go. Um Mufta. Yes. So Save the best for last. Another awesome thing that uh, Jams has done is she founded a digital news magazine called Mufta. Uh, it's great. Uh, and you know I'm not BSing you because I've written for it. Yes, you have. <laughs> a couple of times. Yep. Um, everybody should check it out because uh, it's a bunch of original content uh, written by a variety of people who have super smart things to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so much stuff out there now. It's like this avalanche of, of information. So... Uh, if you think that I say smart things sometimes, because <laughs> nobody's batting a thousand, um, definitely check out Mufta. I vouch for it. Uh, tell the people about Mufta uh, and what you, why you started it, what you're hoping to accomplish with it, et cetera, et cetera. So, so, so Mufta is a product of my wait, 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 own. Hold on, was I saying it wrong? What'd you call it? Mufta. Mufta. Um, so, you know, the, so that's the Arabic way. So I guess in, in, in no, Arabic, it, it's right. like muftah. Muftah. But I mean, it's not like I know what I'm doing when I say something in like Arabic. This is <laughs> oh, not to interrupt you. Inshallah. Sorry, but this is my friends, my, my, Arab, my Arab friends who criticize me when I say, uh, Bashar al-Assad, they're like, no, it's Bashar al-Assad. <laughs> <laughs> they say it so quickly. It's no, but I was guttural. not criticizing you. I, I, I trust me. I if know, I criticize you, you would know it. You would know it. Okay, so so mufta. So I have been cor- corrected many times. Mufta. So I believe that it's mufta. Not <laughs> <laughs> you say it like a used car salesman. <laughs> mufta. 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 There you go. Yeah, so, okay. So mufta was kind of a product of my own. 
ignorance in a way. Um, so I was working at a law firm um, in 2009 when the Green Movement happened, when the Iranian elections happened. So this is actually, so it begins with the Iranian elections. Doesn't the I know, seriously. I remember thinking when it was happening, I was like, I feel like this is going to like mess up the rest of my life. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> turned out to be true. So, um, so I... I was at this law firm, you know, doing my law firm thing, you know, working on Middle East stuff, still really interested in in stuff to do with the region, but was definitely not doing anything outside of the law. Um, Elections happen. Yeah. And I wasn't even on Twitter at this point. I didn't even know Twitter existed. It was all Facebook. I just started, I just like two months before got on Facebook. Um, And I became obsessed with what was happening obsessed yeah i was working 18 hour days just to be able to keep up with what was happening at iran and do my job that's all i did um and i eventually started to read uh the farsi language press um some stuff that was coming directly from iran stuff uh, you know that people outside of iran were, were writing about it um as you know as the as the, the listeners may know as well after about two weeks into the elections michael jackson died yeah very ill-timed and therefore nobody cared about the revolution the, the revolution sorry the protests anymore um and uh, but of course i did i mean like michael jackson was like n- not gonna stop me you know I'm, <laughs> yeah. I was like, mj a lot of respect no, but like i'm not i'm not getting derailed i'm not getting derailed i was like focus keep focus <laughs> keep focus jams so um, I continued to sort of obsessively read um, everything I could about what was happening. Obviously, things were continuing to happen inside the country, even though no one was paying attention to it outside. Yeah, fully. Um, I started to write kind of the things I was reading about um, uh, in a little, in a tiny little blog. Um, no one was reading the blog, but I was obsessed about putting content on that little thing. Yeah. So I kept writing on, I kept doing this. After a couple of months, I realized like, no one's reading this. Why am I doing this? <laughs> um, however, um, I you know, was very frustrated by the disconnect I saw between the things I was reading in Farsi and the things I was reading in English. Um, the uh, nuclear negotiations restarted that fall, you yeah. know, as you might remember. I remember it well. You remember it well. Um, and the narrative uh, in the Western press about Iran was that Iran did not want to negotiate um, any kind of deal at that point, when in fact the Iranian establishment was very fractured on whether or not to negotiate the deal. And Ahmadinejad actually wanted a deal, but the leaders of the Green Movement didn't want a deal. You know, very complicated, but absolutely not reflected in any of the mainstream coverage. Um, So this got on my nerves. You know, I take things very personally. (laughs) Um, So... And I kind of felt, you know, my work had never been only focused on Iran or actually even focused on Iran at all. It had been much more sort of regional. So, you know, I knew that the coverage was terrible generally, you know, on the region. I was really upset by this one incident. So my like my revenge was to basically start this website. A website that I hoped would provide coverage on the Middle East that was really that that covered these countries on its own terms. So wasn't coming from a Western perspective, applying a Western lens, dealing with Western biases. Was actually about these countries, what mattered to these countries, talking about the the biases of these countries, you know, and the way they relate to each other, the way they they relate to their people, on its own terms. So as as quote unquote objectively as possible. I think objectivity is. 
largely bullcrap. Can I say that? You can say okay. That. Um, so I'm really I've done a good job. I feel like I mean, with the know, cursing, it's, 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 it's I haven't noticed it. It's a struggle. The it's people, often it's often fluid though. Yeah, I the have cursing. a foul mouth. So the okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Me and you both. So, um, so that that was its mission. That still is is the website's mission. I mean, it has expanded a lot. We now take what we the approach that we used on the Middle East and are applying it to other parts of the world. So, Eastern Europe and Central Asia are now um, also covered by the magazine. We hope to continue to expand. Um, I think the work we do is very important. I agree that it's very cool. Yeah. Um, for those that want to, to visit the website, it's m u f t a h dot org dot o r g muftah muftah yeah yeah I again. I I vouch for it, um, and if you don't want to take my word for it, you can go on the website and you can see the the advisory board of people who mm. uh, help you keep things legit, uh, yeah. which is super cool as well. Um, another shout out to Farid Farhi, yeah, she, and, and she's awesome as well. Um, I think that's awesome. And, and so, one more question about uh, Muftah before we wrap things up. Um, and I'm still saying it wrong, but <laughs> at, at, okay. at this point, I just like saying Ta. Uh, <laughs> what I mean, what do you think? How, how do I say this? What do you think has been, I mean, not the biggest takeaways, but, okay, so you start something out. Obviously, there's a learning curve. Yeah. Um, you, leave thing, you leave a little bit of flexibility to adjust as you see fit. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, a couple of years later, you're, you're in a better place. Right. Um, but like, what have been the growing pains? What have been the biggest kind of like, huh, all right, um, I should probably do this differently. Right. Right. It's, I mean, it's, it's a big undertaking. Yeah, it's a huge. I mean, that's the thing. I didn't understand what a, what 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 an undertaking it really was. Yeah, you it's, know? it's not like running a blog. It's fundamentally different. Yeah. Well, I mean, I when it, when it started, you know, I didn't expect it to last for very long. You know, I was a lawyer. I was committed to being a lawyer. That's what I was going to do. This was just going to be something on the side, and we'd we'd see what would happen. You know, um, but it has completely consumed my life. <laughs> it has become like the it, it's my child you know right. if I never have children it'll be because I'll blame you know because it really is an all-consuming endeavor however I mean I find it extremely worthwhile and very rewarding um, in a way that children are not so um, <laughs> so, um, so but I mean I think the growing pains have been um, you know when I when I launched this I just I literally just hit pu like publish and didn't tell anybody yeah. I told nobody. I had no idea what PR was. I had no idea what marketing was. I had a very, you know, loose understanding of social media, you know. So I think what I've realized over the course of writing this magazine is that you can create the most amazing content possible. But if people aren't reading it or if it's not, if you're not promoting it the right way, then who cares? Totally. So the value and the importance of promotion, um, of figuring out how to package things so that it reaches people uh, I understand that now. I did not understand that for a very long time running this magazine. Um, yeah. And now I would say both of those things are equally important. If anything, the promotion is probably objectively a little bit more important, but I'm so obsessed about the quality control and like quality of content that, you know, at the end of the day, I give a little bit more attention to that. But yeah, but, but getting your stuff in front of people. But what I've also realized and what I think that um, you know, when people say journalism is dead and people only want to watch videos, like I say, shut your mouth, you know, <laughs> because I, we have seen, you know, we, we have a very tiny budget, tiny, we're volunteer driven, volunteer run, very small budget, primarily for social media and promotional purposes. So we can't, you know, force tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people to read our, our articles. 
but they do. Yeah. And oftentimes articles, and it's happening more and more frequently, we'll put them on Facebook, we'll tweet them a couple of times, that they will go viral like that. You right. know, tens of thousands of people in the course of a day will read these articles, you know. So people want the content. They want good content. They want content that pushes back against what they're reading, you know, in, in other places, especially now. Because I do think that generally around the world, the United States included, there's a political consciousness at the grassroots level that's growing. And yeah. people are not willing to sort of just take prepackaged information anymore. They want to hear from different voices. So I think this is an opportunity, and I think that we are taking advantage of it. I think you are, too. I think you guys are killing it. Um, I'm right. a fan. Take no prisoners. No. I mean, what's the point? We're of a fan of you, too. I, I, thank you. Thank very, you very much. Is it Nayak? Is it Nayak? Nayak? Okay, I'm saying it correctly. Nayak, okay. yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, you know, it, it's Nayak, but it's Nayak, depending <laughs> on who you're talking to, right? Um Look, I had one more question about Mufta, but I think rather than spend the time asking another question about Mufta, I think I'm just going to plug it one more time and tell people to go see for themselves uh, because it's good stuff. Um, and before we wrap things up, mm -hmm. uh, I always like to ask people, like, do you have anything you want to plug? <sighs> do, you, do, you have any, do you have any additional knowledge that you would like to give the people that we have not already bestowed upon them? Yes. Now is the chance. Yes. So I actually just finished reading this book that I think – I mean, should be required reading for everybody. Instead of getting, giving middle schoolers Beowulf, we should give them this book. Yeah, I remember Beowulf. Beowulf. That was be miserable. Taken off of the curriculum. Oh, I yeah. saw a play interpreting Beowulf on top of having to read it. It was awful. Oh, my God. And we're talking, this was a long time ago. Um, traumatizing. So I just read this book. Many other people have, well, many have already probably already read it. But if you haven't, I highly suggest it, recommend it. Um, it's called The New Jim Crow. Huh. By Michelle Alexander. That's a spicy title. It is a great title. Have you heard of it? Have you heard about the I book? I have not. So it was published, I think, in 2010. It was like kind of like the right after Obama was elected. Um, she is a law professor at Ohio State. Uh, and she basically, in very, you know, very well researched and detailed prose and readable prose, because I'm a stickler, um, basically describes how. The criminal justice system has become a new form of social control for African Americans. Wow. Um, and I mean, I have never read a legal text um, and cried because it wasn't making me miserable, you know? I, <laughs> but I did with this. It was an emotional experience to read this book. Um, it is extremely eye opening and I think critical for every American to read this um, oh, wow. because this is a huge part of our, I mean, this is our justice system, you yeah. know, and this is the way our justice system is functioning. Um, and I think that there are, and not, I don't know, I'm not the only one, think that there are a lot of parallels between the war on drugs and the, the way the criminal justice system worked with uh, works with that and the war on terror and the way the criminal justice system is working with, working with, with that system. What does they first say, what is that, that quote from the Polish priest who died in World War II? First, they came for my neighbor. Then they came. In or, any case, yeah, like first they came for the French, but I didn't. Speak yeah, yeah, up yeah. I exactly. French, then, so it's yeah. something like that, right? You know, it's a criminal justice system that, for now, you know, is definitely very focused on a certain populations or certain populations. Um, but 
I think it it's cause for concern for any for everybody. You know. So wow, that's um, that's that's the jam seal of approval. Major seal of approval. I want to like uh, I, this woman is not on Twitter. I was like trying to find her so I could tweet at her. All I kept quoting the book on Twitter over the course of the last week. So it's like <laughs> yeah. my Twitter feed is like riddled with tell information people, from tell it. Tell the people your Twitter handle so they can follow you oh. and, and get knowledge uh, at their at their pleasure. My tw- Twitter handle is Miss Jam Sheedy, which was my <laughs> name in law school. We were all referred to by our last name. So, so M S M S Jam Sheedy J A M S H I D I. There you go. There you go. Follow Maryam Jamshidi on Twitter. At your peril. There, no, gems. Not, <laughs> or, 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 or as me and my friends back in Seattle like to call them, knowledge darts. <laughs> knowledge darts. Straight from jams. I can't thank you enough for thank taking you. the time and coming and sitting in my office thank and you. doing this with it me. It's a pleasure. The pleasure is all mine. You know, it's, it feels good to be on the short list. Well, well, again, we try and give talented Iranian Americans the opportunity to share their knowledge with with everybody else whether the the listeners are Iranian American or not Iranian American we welcome everyone uh, but I think we have a lot of supremely talented people in the community yeah, and that are doing stuff that is not just being uh, the typical doctor lawyer engineer yeah. and there's nothing wrong with those three because I got them all in my family <laughs> uh, but I'm not one so I appreciate those who uh, kind of go off the beaten Me path too. and are super smart and are hustling and are grinding and are doing cool stuff yeah, and are absolutely. trying to make the world a better place absolutely so respect respect to you thank you Thank you. Let's do it again soon. Absolutely. All right. Thank you. One, two, three, and to the folks. Snoop Doggy Dog and Dr. Dre is at the door. Ready to make an entrance, so back on up.